Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of DutchCast, the podcast about anything and everything collegiate. I'm your host, Larkin McKay, and in today's episode, we have with us Dr. Lurie. Uh, as you all know, Dr. Lurie is the head of school, and I'm actually in his cosmopolitanism class this semester. Uh, so just to begin, Dr. Lurie, why don't you begin by introducing yourself, uh, giving some personal background, how long you've been at collegiate, uh, where you went to college, et cetera. Sure. Um, so thanks for having me on. appreciate it. Uh, this is the beginning of my fourth year at Collegiate. Um, I can't quite tell if it's gone by very quickly or feels like it's taken a long time to get here. Um, let's see, what can I tell you about myself? Uh, grew up outside of Boston, um, went to public schools through ninth grade, and then I switched over to a school called Roxbury Latin, kind of similar profile as Collegiate. Um, was there, graduated, went on to Yale. Um, after graduating from college, moved to Florida, where I started teaching. Started as a Latin teacher. Oh, yep. Um, taught Latin for first few years, coached, advised. Um, had a wonderful experience there. Um, and then spent some time in California uh, at a boarding school. Was there for six years and then moved to Virginia where I was at a preschool through 12th grade um, co-ed school there. Um, about 900 plus kids, two campuses, a um, place called St. Anne's Belfield. We were there for uh, 14 years. Um, and then somewhere in between all that, um, got my uh, graduate degree from Columbia Teachers College. Um, and then, yeah, in July of 2020, July 1st, uh, drove into New York City um, to join Collegiate. You were in the city throughout the whole 2020 summer? Correct, yep. So, um, in fact, um, I happened to be in the city that March, right? You probably remember, right, that you guys went off to spring break and uh, didn't come back. Um, I was in the city with my wife and my daughter doing college visits. So we had driven into the city, I think it was that Wednesday, and uh, all of her visits were canceled. And I came into the building to say hi to some folks, see Dr. Levison, et cetera. And uh, we were shaking elbows, not hands at that point. And I don't think anyone of, one of us knew. So... Um, so yeah, so finished up at St. Anne's for that spring and had a similar experience there that you were all having here. Um, but yeah, then moved into the city, July of 2020, and that had that extraordinary school year. I'm sure, like you and all your your classmates, remember. Um, so great. Just before we get into talking about cosmopolitanism um, yeah. and like geopolitics and all sure. that. Uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in just hearing what you do every day, like your daily schedule. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So um, it, it, it varies tremendously. Um, and I will say on the subject of cosmopolitanism or the other courses I've taught, like citizenship, like that is, is um, it's, first of all, it's my favorite part of every day. And it also grounds me, you know, uh, that... I know that I've got class Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, um, and so that's the most important thing that I do, whether it's planning for the class, correcting uh, papers, et cetera. Um, and then really, it can vary a ton. Um, I obviously do a lot of work with the Board of Trustees, um, 
you know, you know that we've had a couple of big projects here, you know, like the purchase of 50 Riverside. So, you know, that that's a good example of something that will take up um, a decent chunk of my day. Um, we, you know, we had the courtyard and rooftop projects. So, you know, that's some of the stuff. Um, certainly a big topic this year has been the food, um, you know, the change in food service. So I think back to last spring, kind of winter into the spring, visiting schools, looking at their food service, interviewing vendors. So all that stuff that happens behind the scenes. Um, and then every single day, um, you may have noticed, I walk through the building every single day, at least twice, and that's an opportunity to, to just pop my head in the classrooms and, and, and so forth. Um, but that, that's, you know, that's kind of the broad strokes of it. Some are busier than others. Yeah. Um, do a lot of reading. Uh, we have, um, this year is our New York um, Independent School Association accreditation. Like something that you as a student probably don't know about or, or care that much about. But we, you know, we get accredited every 10 years. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important process. So we're doing it this year in November so Dr. Boynton actually is overseeing that process. Yeah. So this morning I finished reading our 100-plus page report on yeah. every aspect of the school. Um, so it's some of those administrative things. Yeah. Um, cool. So diving right in, I thought we had a great discussion about uh, U.S. foreign policy in yeah. a class on Monday, mm -hmm. um, just talking about the history of the United States, like policy of disapproval. Yeah, sure. Um, quote-unquote, yep. and the history of foreign intervention. And we discussed how the U.S. still seems to face largely the same problems as it did like 100 years ago with the um, yeah. example of like the like Turkey and Ottoman Empire, World mm -hmm. War I. Um, so I guess my question is exactly like how much do you, in your opinion at least, has uh, U.S. foreign policy changed and how much has it stayed the same? Has it really changed all that much in like 100 years of dealing with European or global conflicts? Yeah, well, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a huge question and a hugely important question. Um, and I'm sure that in, in so many of the classes, I was just having lunch with, you know, one of your schoolmates and, you know, he's taking AP Euro this year and they're, you know, they're beginning to have those conversations. Um, obviously, as you're teaching history, right, that is the theme whether it's foreign policy or, or other issues of what um, what circumstances repeat themselves over time, which ones change. We talked about right in class today, even a circumstance talking about the first Iraq war, which was not that long ago, um, kind of a similar situation as Ukraine, but still has called for a very different response. Um, but, you know, I also... And, and I remember one of your classmates mentioned this right a couple of days ago uh, about George Washington's farewell letter, not address, but it was a letter back then, right, of, of um, eliminating all permanent foreign entanglements, yeah. right? And really for a huge balance of, of our history, that was the predominant right, operating philosophy. Yeah. No doubt there were exceptions to it. And right, but then World War II comes and completely different, right? You talk about a Truman Doctrine, right? The Marshall Plan, and and I think that's an example, as we touched upon in class, of 
right, a significant change in world circumstances that called for, right, that change in U.S. policy. And, um, but then, it, then as we address today, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that has, has sort of ushered in this age of that so-called new world order, which I think, again, has informed different ways of us engaging with the world. Um, and then, you know, the, the age of terror, post 9-11, called for more U.S. involvement. But I think we're, again, seeing a pullback and a reset of sorts um, of what, what precisely America's ongoing role should be. Because, yeah, there's like even in class, there's there are debates about like how to what extent should we involve ourselves, if at all. Exactly. And like yeah. the duty the U.S. has as like. A global power or correct uh, like the largest military and everything yeah um so yeah like on on ukraine mm. it, it is like a more modern example of what we talk about in class but right. there's it's different and then somalia or bosnia and that it's russia like another major yep. global superpower that sure. has nuclear weapons yeah so there's a bit more of a clear-cut uh restriction to what the u.s can do sure because right. you can't you like Putin's threatened the nuclear option and everything. So there's, but um, mm -hmm. I guess what like, how, what are those restrictions like other than, like because yeah. it's not a civil war. It's a one country invading another country. Sure. So I guess what, what is the extent of what the U.S. can do realistically, in your opinion? Yeah, and it's um, it, it's a timely question or you know or coincidental because today, like the New York Times editorial board has a, a full editorial on this yeah. very question. I read it this morning, you know, among checking in, um, you know, in the regular cycle of the news. I mean, you're exactly right. Um, and that is also something that history has taught us. You think back to the Korean conflict, right, where there was this hope for, of course, a quick victory of reuniting that, um, the peninsula. And, but there was this overarching idea, concern, if you will, yeah. that, U.S. forces were not going to come, could not come into direct military conflict with the Chinese army or certainly Russian army, right? And so I think it's very similar here. And, and the New York Times writes that today. I mean, they sort of, they establish that as a baseline here. There's, there's really no circumstance in which U.S. forces, right, really should or could come into direct military conflict with Russia. That's a whole different ballgame. Um, so, you know, as they write, I think, and, um, you know, I, I, was, I was glad to read it because it touches on the themes that we're discussing. Really, their, their op-ed today is about public support, U.S. public support. How do you maintain it in what is looking like an even more protracted conflict, right? Are we going to continue, you know, to provide financial assistance yeah. in the billions of dollars? Yeah. Does Congress have the stomach for that? Um, what kind of assistance are we going to give? Mm -hmm. You know, you may recall uh, several weeks ago, the discussion slash debate was around cluster bombs. Yeah. And certainly moral implications of that, military usage of that. Um, and, you know, now there's a discussion among NATO countries about F-16 fighters. 
And while I, I think certainly people would want to frame that as, again, you know, you're supplying necessary arms to protect Ukraine, you know, you might be potentially butting up against this sort of offensive um, type of weapon. Um, so, you know, way above my pay grade yeah. to know the answer to this. Um, I, I always think of these things through the lens of a teacher. And, I mean, it goes back to your excellent first question of what do we learn from the past. And I think it provides us this, again, a wonderful example of we can look at some historical precedent that can inform it, and it's a different ballgame yeah, in many respects, right? Because um, we, we do, like, the sort of call it a workshop in class, just, mm -hmm. like, mimicking yeah that yeah. discussion table, sure. deciding what the U.S. is going right. to do in a given situation. But I know there was, way back when this first started, there was discussion of Putin having blood cancer or something that like would cause him to be even more of an irrational actor. Oh, right, yeah, and just in the that news he reports would of that, yeah. Just go out with a bang, like, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. So um, I guess, is does Russia have, I, I don't know, do, do you think Russia has that sort of, debate table of what they're going to do, or is it just kind of Putin making the decisions for himself? Um, oh, I, I, I think it's the latter, yeah. right? I mean, that, that's the, um, you know, certainly everything that I've read and, and listening to the experts on this, right, you, you're dealing with an autocratic regime. Um, there, I mean, he certainly, I'm sure, has advisors, mm -hmm. and I think it's also fair to say, we all know this, is that the war has not gone the way that they had expected. Um, so, you know, whatever tactics they might be debating, that's one thing. Um, but this is his war. Yeah. And, um, you know, whatever considerations have gone on to it or to, I think, again, the point of your question is, you know, what, what is his calculus in his mind when it comes yeah. to his own domestic standing? Um, and, I, and I think, you know, as well as, as you're trying to think about U.S. policy and U.S. response and our work with, with allies, you really can, I would assume, assess it through his eyes, yeah. right, and, and trying to determine what, what he wants. Because it's probably just easier to make a decision as someone who has consolidated so much power. Like, you don't really have to worry about your public approval rating because it's like a hundred percent in every that, poll. That, right? that is correct. So I do not think so that he is. You kind of don't have. Right. You, I guess you don't really need that debate because there's nothing. Yes. Like oh, what, what is the public going to think? He doesn't right. care. Right. As we exactly. as we talked about our criteria, like we know here, as we think about military intervention, or as we've been talking about in the case of genocide, yeah. is it matters? Congressional yeah. approval, public support. You know how the media is portraying these events, yeah. um, because it cascades. And it's not just through election cycles, yeah. but it's also what a president or an administration can also get done, yeah. right? Because a, a, a president here has to have some level of public support and public approval, if not for a potential military intervention, but also for their domestic agenda. Yeah. So if, if, if the former you know, gets bungled in some way and you lose support, you actually lose support for On potentially. Like yeah, yeah, that's right. You just, yeah. people think you like, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, yeah. um, the issue of 
this I, I've thought about this for a while and had some great discussions with like both my parents and my friends and mm-hmm. whoever about um involving yourself in politics as like a young adult and like what yeah. what age is right to or it, it could be like an age range but when when do you start letting a kid like really have full access to the news and like like understand yeah, because uh, obviously, like a five-year-old isn't gonna really mm-hmm. be able to like understand complex geopolitical issues. Yeah, but um, I, I guess at what like how much exposure would be? I I, I'm, I assume yeah. it changes based on the parent, but how much exposure is too much for um, like a younger kid? Like you, oh, like um, the attitude of let's like preserve some, a kid's innocence yeah. or he doesn't really need to know this right now because it's like a sad event that's happening or whatever. Yeah. But um, I guess as as a head of school, how do you mm-hmm. sort of in the more lower middle school curriculum, yep. like social studies or moderate events class or whatever, um, how do you manage like if if the conflicting views of parents, if one parent says, I don't want my kid to have to learn about what's going on in Ukraine because he's yeah. 10 and another parents saying oh he should be able to like be active in the media at the age yeah. that he's at right now uh whoo that's a great question it's a great question and um so like a few thoughts i would share is and and you 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 even touched upon it right everything that we do um here you have to have through the lens of what's developmentally appropriate and right and and the challenge is is that that in, in, in many respects is a judgment call, right? Because even in the same grade level, you'll have varying degrees of either exposure or understanding. And that's particularly so when you get late elementary into middle school. Yeah. You remember that, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have to rely on the expertise, the wisdom, you know, and that trust you put into the teachers, mm-hmm. okay? And, and also... Um, it, it's also assessing what the ki- what the the kids are exposed to. So let's use a, a um, an example, obviously a tragic example of 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 nine eleven. Um, so th- there's of course a highly emotional, um, very very difficult topic that you would imagine, right, for young kids in particular, right, to really process. Yeah. At the same time they were going to be aware of it. Yeah. So in that case, the debate is really not whether we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It is about how we're going to in a developmentally appropriate way, yeah. right? Um, because what you actually don't want to do in any age is just avoid to- yeah. what the topic may be. Yeah. You know, we're having a, a, you know, a fairly sophisticated conversation here about Ukraine, yeah perhaps not a conversation we'd have at the younger levels. Yeah. But at the same time, I think we could assume that some, some young kids are aware yeah. that there's a war going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we sort of paint those broad strokes that inform just enough yeah. and in the proper way let them maybe wrestle with some of those details, right? Um, to the point about, about parents... I think the key is is that you want to make sure parents are informed. Yeah, you know that that's that's incredibly important. And say you know th- this is a particular topic, it's in the news. You know we're going to be talking about it at this point, and this is how we're going to 
to address it. And that not only informs parents, but it, it creates the partnership. So it, when you're at the dinner table, you know, there's reinforcement of those conversations. Yeah. Um, and, and then I also think when you get into the older ages and, and these conversations become more complex and nuanced and we get into issues of debate, we had a debate today in class, right, yeah. where there was some difference. You, yeah. right, you and Alex were, were debating something, um, is really driving questions, um, not telling kids what to think, um, making sure you're developing their critical thinking skills, um, basing those discussions and debates in facts and history. Um, but I, the last thing I would say, circling back, um, to be to put kind of a finer point on this, is I really think in middle school that these civics issues, right, issues of civics and civic engagement, I think you really need to start leaning into. Yeah. Um, because you are getting into that higher level thinking, mm -hmm. critical thinking, you can really engage with complex matters, and it builds your interest. Because I know it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. I mean, yeah. you are going to inherit the world. Yeah. And I think the sooner that you can get um, you kids involved in that, the much better we're going to be. Um, I would also, I would also imagine that with, like, like not so you you probably wouldn't discuss this in like first or second grade or right. even can because, um, I guess not that. I don't know. Everyone's different. Not to say that mm -hmm. kids couldn't handle it, but they just wouldn't be able to like process Correct. the information at like a level where it they can really form like a like a whole opinion on a topic. Yeah, probably. I mean, you think about the question that you just asked earlier, of, and yeah, that's very different level. What what I think, you know, I would use, it's always in the back of my mind, thinking about our teachers with the youngest kids, is to always be prepared for, right, for the boy who raises his hand and says, is there something going on in Ukraine? Yeah. Now, even that child may not even know what they're asking, but they've heard it in the news or it was being discussed. What I never want, even at the youngest grade levels, is for a teacher to say, well, that doesn't concern us. Or, oh, don't, you know, don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. Because uh, if there's a universal rule that I operate under, is that you and every boy in this school, yeah. you're really smart. Thank you. Right? You, you, like, and, but you know what I mean? It's yeah. like... You're aware, yeah. and so right there's this, you know, almost think of the phrase, you know, "Tell it to me straight." Mm -hmm. And so there's a way to answer that question for a first grader. Yeah, you know, Larkin, that's a really important question. Mm -hmm. And yes, there is this war going on on the other side of the world, mm -hmm. um, and you know, to think of the right appropriate talking points for that child. So it's sort of like the, um, what, what you're saying, the ideal age, not like, like obviously, it's, yeah. again, it's a range, but sort of discussing it at a young enough age where you develop an interest yep. or an exposure to it. So it's sort of in your core mm -hmm. education. So right. a part of your core education. So when you're actually a citizen voting, paying attention to the media cycle, what, like you, you have a genuine interest in it and know sort of 
the implications of what your opinion can mean, yeah. like your vote, yeah. writing a letter or whatever. Um, but there is there's so much news, and you can you can pay attention. There's like it, we were talking. There, there used to be three <laughs> three news channels. Three news channels. Um, yeah. And now there's thousands. You get you can yes. get texts, emails, any mm-hmm. social media, still TV, uh, podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there's so many ways to consume media that you could kind of consume media. Would you say too much? Like pay too much attention to the news? I guess because there mm-hmm. there is a limited effect that one person can have on an entire topic. So you have like a leader of a movement and a follower of a movement, uh, any social movement, political movement, but the actual impact of any given person, uh, is it worth paying attention to the news 24-7? And you obviously want a break, but how how much is sort of too much in that it doesn't really make sense as you're not going to, you're not just going to, you're not the one deciding. So yep. it kind of, you want to be educated on it, but not drown in the news per se. So I guess how what do you think is a balanced amount of news consumption? Yeah. That's probably again a range, but no, it's uh it's a great question. And it's a nuanced question because even embedded in your question when you talk about news or media, you know, when you use the example as as I shared in class, right, we had three news stations and, you know, you listen to Walter Cronkite or whoever, you know, Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw. Um, that th- there was, and some people could even argue whether this is a good thing, a fairly central repository for the day's news. Yeah. And to your point, um, there is now not only so much of it, mm-hmm. but there's this interesting um, crossover, like a blend of news and opinion, yeah. right? Which I think right it's hard to discern sometimes mm-hmm. so for me um you know i i feel like your question is about the volume of it yeah which yeah i think there there can be too much yeah right um what right what's the term like the term doom scrolling like you know yeah, people just, are like constantly checking caught, right so you know, like that's not healthy that. for anybody yeah right um uh but you know what any particular person can consume um, you know, that can depend on the person, obviously. But for me, it, it's more of, I mean, my bigger concern is, right, the so-called echo chamber, yeah. which is, right, that you we now have the ability to find the quote-unquote news that we want. Exactly. And that, to me, is the biggest danger. Yeah. Because even if I don't agree with a particular news source or a particular opinion, I have to engage in it. Yeah. I have to engage in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that I think is, is, you know, in this, in this moment in time, when we do think about technology and social media, et cetera, like that's a massive, massive change. Yeah. And how, our own society is, is, is handling it. And then to talk to you, I think you're, you know, the key here, right, is how that informs you as someone who's growing up in this setting to become informed and engaged. Yeah. Um, I guess because I find when I, I don't really pay attention to the news all that much. I try to keep up as much as I can, but I'm just sort of, um, 
I, I can't vote yet. Like I, yeah. I probably it, it might just be arbitrary, but I'll I figure I'll pay more attention to the news once I can well, actually vote and everything. That's okay. But um, some of my friends pay attention to it a lot more than I do, and I th- I think it's interesting. If like if anything, it's kind of in a way fun to have a, dis- a dinner table debate about sure. anything that's going on just yeah. for the sake of dialogue. But when I do find myself like really interested in an issue, I try to use as many news sources as possible, which seems sort of uh, a little bit of a shame that you have to, to check six different articles, three right-leaning, three left-leaning, or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. to get like to form a total opinion. Uh, because you, you can get caught up in that just... My guess is different news sources probably just um, report the news in a certain way that boosts their rating. Someone who agrees with them is going to really like this talk show host, speaker, or not talk show, uh, this host of a, a debate if he's agreeing with what they're saying. Yep. So the echo chamber, I see this guy on TV and he's saying exactly what I think. Oh, I really like this show now. Yeah. Whereas um, even if I see something like that, I still try to at least look up and... Uh, a different news source or someone who is has a polar opposite view of the issue yep. just to sort of see the other side. But is there... I'm sort of looking for a news source that is down the middle. Are there <laughs> any of those like left or yeah. are they all kind of leaning? Um, well, I mean, that's again, it's like a matter of debate. You know, people could say that, you know, this particular outlet, you know, that's kind of right down the middle yeah. and another person could have a totally different view on it. Um, I think that your what the approach that you just described is that's the ideal. Yeah. Is that no matter what the source is, um, or I, I guess I should say what the medium is, and I'm going to assume that you're doing a lot of what you describe on the phone. Is that fair yeah. to say? Right. Just articles. Right? Yeah. But a lot of it is social media. Like you yes. get if if that's there's right. a major event happening just on your Instagram feed or TikTok or whatever, it it will push something. Yeah. And yeah. Know, I mean, w- one thing that I, that I would just say, um, hearing you say that, and, and this is why, um, you know, I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast. I hope, because part of me hopes that, like, the parents listen to this. Because I think there would be a huge percentage of folks in my generation who would react to what you just said of getting your news on TikTok. And so even that is an important piece of learning because if that's going to be where you are getting your news or your information and you are building your own thinking mm-hmm. as, as you know, not just a fellow citizen, but as a parent, as an educator, wow. I mean, I need, yeah. I thought, I thought that was dance videos, like 30 second that dance videos. So, and now yeah. you're looking at me like, no, you are like way behind the times. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and shout at the rain. Mm-hmm. Am I, am I going to talk you out of going to TikTok for your news? No, I'm not. That's not going to happen. So I can only hope that in the conversations we have as families and as we have in classrooms and, even, and with your friends, that, that to whatever varying degree they're doing what you just described, which is you're just checking in with a fairly broad range of sources yeah. on whatever the key issue or issues of the day are. Yeah. And, you know, how do, how do we check ourselves as well boy i keep going to this one place i keep going to this one place makes me feel really good yeah you know can i find something that's going to challenge me a bit
Because the one thing that I think is probably the most harmful about social media, Twitter, TikTok, or X now, um, <laughs> Twitter, TikTok, or Instagram, is that it's so short and it's such it, that you can kind of pick the parts of the story that you want people to hear. So I tend to, at least in my experience, like those, that way of consuming media ends up, the opinions are a little bit more right or left leaning or just biased in a certain way because it's so easy to just splice the parts of the story that you want to tell and you want people to hear. But it's also, that that is the harmful aspect, but it's also, you don't have to go, like it's it's a way to be informed very quickly. You can watch a 20 second video and kind of have a decent Mm -hmm. understanding at least of what's going on instead of, like yeah it's it, it it's it's not difficult to go look up an article but that is more work than just randomly scrolling through whatever social media you're on and just getting a small amount of information yeah um, for a complex topic for a complex exactly right and and you don't want to imp- you don't want to oversimplify very difficult complex like ukraine yeah and so how do we how do we build this important habit of of clicking yeah a couple times, like I can't tell you how many times I'll see a headline, you know, um, you know, li- little news um, summary that says something happened, and then you know I'll watch the corresponding video, and say that's not at all what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and you know we we are we're just living in a time where that second click reveals so much more than you. Yeah. It does, but right. I, I don't mean this as a critic. It's just the reality. I don't think. That, that, that folks who were like, um, who grew up with social media necessarily get to that sec. I mean, TikTok is TikTok, yeah. right? Because there is, there is the aspect of so many people are on social media and they like, it, it's, it's a way to reach a large audience yeah. of people very quickly. Mm-hmm. So you can get more people to learn or care about an issue through that, that form of media. But, Again, it is it's so short and so not in depth that you can kind of it's probably pretty easy to get a large group of people to sway in one direction or another just because of it's it's you just feed them the facts that you want or not even the fact but you feed them the opinion they want or you want to feed them in such a short amount of time to such a large amount of people. Um so I guess to finish this, um, I do sort of a speed question round oh, okay. with everyone I've interviewed. All right. Um, so just to start, if you had to pick, what is your favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie? Ooh. Um. <laughs> uh, there, there are a few that pop into mind, but I will answer with one. I, I think I'll go with Jaws. 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 I actually haven't he, seen that. I need to see that. Oh movie. my gosh, Lark. Okay, we're gonna. Pr- we 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 should we try to paint the setting right now? Yeah, one of my uh, my friends <laughs> is taking a picture of us through the glass right now. Is it a picture <laughs> or video? Yeah. Um. Yeah, like I said, there's a few others that pop into mind. It's it's a little bit timely because I just saw there's a there's a show on Broadway right now, um, called The Shark Is Broken. And it's a it's a behind the scenes story of making Jaws. Yeah. Um, and so it's a little bit top of mind, but I've always loved the movie, um, and I'm a big Spielberg fan. Yeah. So and having grown up outside of Boston, you know, it was filmed, you know, Martha's Vineyard. 
Um, what genre of music is your favorite? What do you listen to the most? I am unapologetically a 1970s into the 1980s, like straight down the middle pop really? person. Yeah. Um, I, I associate, and, and it, that would be music that I'm sure folks would, would call like really cheesy music. But, um, like Yacht Rock? Do you like Yes. I love Yacht yeah, Rock. See, there you go. It's okay. Amazing. See? Yeah. Thank you. You nailed it. If I go on to Spotify and I need like a, you know, road trip, pff, Yacht Rock love all it. over it. <laughs> um, this is a funny question. When you run out of toothpaste, do you roll the tube or do you squeeze it? Uh, squeeze it. Squeeze yeah, I'll it. put it on and push it all the way up. It's, it's is funny. That, is, that, is that revealing of certain I just personality ask it, types? I just okay. ask it every right. time. It's it's such a funny question. And there, I, I've. Uh, How's the range of answers there? Pretty down the middle. There's okay. there's right. a lot of rollers. Okay, a lot of rollers um, out there. All right. Yeah, uh, I squeeze too though. I don't. Okay. I don't. Mine's kind of a mess. It just kind of I squeeze the middle and then some sinks to the bottom. Oh yeah. And I, yeah. I have to use like a credit card. <laughs> squeeze the last bit. Um, what's your favorite comfort food meal? Oh gosh. So okay, comfort food. Uh, completely unoriginal, but it's gotta be um, pizza. When in doubt, like you Italian, just can't. like New York style. Chicago. New York style. It's, yeah, again, sort of like Yacht Rock, straight down the middle. A, a good pizza solves a lot of problems, don't you think? Yeah. Um, what is your favorite place that you've ever visited? Uh, oh, like a destination? Yeah. Like, or just, um, it, can, it can be here, but just anywhere that you've been. Favorite. Um, it's 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 such a great question. Um, I, I for for many years, um, I don't know if we'll have the opportunity to do this, but for many years when I would end my course, because I taught seniors, yeah, sort of as I do now for years and years and years, I would always end the school year with kind of a similar thing that you're doing now, and we as a class, and it was an exercise in reflection, yeah. um, and we would ask a very similar question. Like, sort of, what is your place in the world that you really love? Um, and I'm going to answer it, because I gave this answer when the kids would ask me. It's, it's uh, the Jacqueline Onassis Reservoir. You know, we used to visit New York as a family yeah. every year. And I love the park. I love the reservoir. We walked it this morning. Um, so in some ways, it's kind of weird that I live here now. Yeah. And have such regular access to it. But there's something just... I don't know. I, I I just love that spot. Yeah. Actually, I run in the park. I go around that like one or two Do times. Do you? All that. right. Yeah. Are you a morning runner, afternoon? After school. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. That's what it's yeah. like. My favorite place to run. Um. And so, lastly, what is your favorite board game? Ah. Uh, okay. I'll I'll dig again into archives here, which is sort of like Yacht Rock, uh, Trivial Pursuit. Which I'm not sure if he, I'm you, not, you're not I've looking heard, like I've you know it, that I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself. I mean, there there may be more uh, like modern versions, but it was, Trivial Pursuit was um, I, I think it was kind of a craze when it came out in, in the '80s. I've heard of it. I don't know how. I've I've definitely yeah. heard of it though. It's Very it's a, it's a great game. In fact, I have a a whole set of cards in here. Yeah. Um, but we used to play it as as a family. That was our thing: was to play Trivial Pursuit. 
But I mean, as as a second, I'd put Scrabble. I'm a big Scrabble fan as well. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I guess that'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for. Thank you. On. You're 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 so nice to spend time with me. Yeah. Um. So I guess to the audience. Um. I have another episode planned for next week, hopefully with Dr. Esposito, about uh, classical philosophy, literature, um, and like linguistics. Uh, but thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you again very soon.